BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. We start today with the big, already apparent conflicts of interest with Donald Trump and the Oval Office and the Office of the Presidency of the United States. And, you know, we knew this was coming because he ran as, right, a businessman. Uh, As he said, that's what he brought to the table. He never released his tax returns, even though he promised to. He never released his financial records, even though he promised to. And he has said he refuses to put his business operations, his business interests, in a blind trust. So what do you expect but one conflict of interest after another? And they have already started. And you know what makes this particularly, I think, galling to uh, those of us who've been watching Donald Trump and waiting for this other shoe to drop is, all their his complaints and all the Republican complaints about Bill and Hillary Clinton and their foundation. Pay to play, pay to play, right? That's what they were doing. And uh, you heard me criticize the fact that uh, some of the people at the Clinton Foundation were lining up meetings with the Secretary of State for uh, donors who gave to the Clinton Foundation. I, I said at the time uh, that that wasn't right, that they should have built a firewall. Uh, and not let that uh, and not let that happen. So not defending that, but you talk about Donald Trump. This is pay to play on steroids. No matter what you think about meetings with Hillary Clinton, that money was not going into Bill Clinton's pocket. That money was not going into Hillary Clinton's pocket. It was going into the foundation to do some great work around the world. What we're talking about now is a president-elect who is, I know it's a strong phrase, but I'm going to tell you this is exactly what it is. He is pimping the presidency. He is already using the office he'll be sworn into in January to make money for Trump International, to make to put money in his own pocket. And here's what I'm talking about, at least three cases so far. One is this past week at Trump Tower in New York, while he's interviewing people to be members of his cabinet while he is putting his new administration together, we now law. And the photo is out there. It's no secret. It wasn't announced ahead of time. Donald Trump meets at Trump Tower with some businessmen, men from India, who have built a new, a new Trump hotel and are going to plan to build a second one. This is money again. Donald Trump, he's hustling running his business while he's supposed to be uh, serving all of us by putting together a new administration. And he's meeting with them, making plans for expanding his business empire uh, in India, number one. Number two, here in Washington, D.C., he's got this brand new property, this brand new hotel, the old post office here on Pennsylvania Avenue, about three blocks from the White House. So last week, 
the people at the Trump Hotel, had a great big open house and a reception for foreign diplomats who were stationed here in Washington, giving them a whole tour of the hotel saying, you want to have some meetings, you want to hold some dinners, you want to hold some receptions, your head of state or your important people come to Washington, do we have a deal for you? You know, the implied message, of course, is you want to cozy up to the next president of the United States, schedule your event here, put your people here, and he'll know who stays here and who won't stay here. Again, pimping the presidency of the United States. And what makes that even worse is that that property does, is not owned by Donald Trump. He is leasing it from the U.S. government. So here he is as president. He will be the landlord of his own property, and they're using his name and his position to book events and to book people into that hotel. And they're already doing it. And if that's not enough, right, then you've got Ivanka Trump, who is out there on some TV show showing off her uh, $10,800 bracelet Silver bracelet, I think it was, right? And hawking that on television, say, oh, you can get one just like it. Go to my website, whatever it is. You know, it's just like her father. Remember that famous news conference in at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, where he where he started off hawking his steaks yeah. and his wine uh, as part as part of the news conference, or during the campaign when he went to Ireland to show off his golf courses. I mean, you know, this guy, I think he sees the presidency as one thing, one op- one thing, which is an opportunity to make more money, not just after he leaves office, but while he is in the White House. It is a massive, massive conflict of interest. And I find it stunning that they're not even there yet, and they're already Trying to, uh, to trying to peddle the presidency, which is exactly what they're doing. I, I think one of the most telling moments from how Donald Trump is going to be president is when he made that great big announcement during the campaign that he was going to say something about the president's birth certificate. Remember this? This was just a couple months ago. And he oh, yeah. held this big conference. He had everybody there right. at his new hotel. And then he went on. Talking about the hotel. About the hotel, how great it is, how to get a room, all this stuff. And then at the very end, talked very quickly about the birth certificate and then left. Oh, by the way, uh, yeah, he was born here. Boom. Thanks for coming to see the hotel. Right. And then, so Mike Pence, I think, uh, summed it up yesterday uh, when he summed up what Donald Trump thinks about his conflicts of interest and his businesses. Well, I I can tell you, in a a recent interview after the election, uh, the president-elect summed up his view of his interest in his business life with two words. He said, who cares? Uh, Oh, God. Yeah, I'll tell you who cares. I'll tell you who cares. We care. We care. The founding fathers cared. They didn't want somebody profiteering off the presidency, which is exactly what Donald Trump is already doing. Now, what do we do about this? You tell me, 866-55-PRESS. Do you think this is a problem? I do. I think it's a massive problem. And again, I find it stunning that they are so tone deaf that nobody around Donald Trump has said, hey, wait a minute, you can't be it. No, no, no. You can't be doing that. You can't be meeting with these people and talking about building new hotels. 
you're now, you are elected president of the United States. you got a different job now. No, but I think the only way out of it is Donald Trump has got to do, it's a radical solution. He's got to do what other people have done, is put, is get his, liquidate, liquidate his entire holdings and put all of that money, maybe it's $10 billion, like he says, or whatever it is, and put all of that money in a blind trust. But the and and just put that aside and eliminate any any possibility of a conflict. But the idea that he's not going to have a blind trust, that he's going to let his kids run this business, and for us to believe that that's not going to be a massive ongoing conflict of interest, I don't buy it. Uh, give us something to cheer to cheer us up. Elias Ithquith, we turn to from Cafe.com. Hey, Elias, what do you think yeah. about uh, Donald Trump's uh, cabinet picks so far? Uh, any surprises? Um, no, not really. I mean, I guess the biggest surprise conceivably was selecting Reince Priebus as his nominal chief of staff. But as I'm sure you guys have talked about, um, that was more of a sop to whatever few members of the Republican establishment probably think they, you know, can work with Trump and, right. and he wanted to yeah. to give them someone they knew to communicate with him uh, through. Other than that, um, you know, it hasn't been perhaps the worst case scenario because he's not selecting people you've never heard of whose only qualification is their loyalty to him to run these major agencies. But he did pick someone like that uh, to be his chief strategist. Um, most people had never heard of Steve Bannon, Mr. Breitbart. Right. Uh, so, I mean, you know, Sessions is about as awful a pick for, for the DOJ as you could come up with. If you're looking at a list of people who've been in D.C. long enough that, you know, they could clear the Senate. Um, so I suppose the silver lining, though, is that he picked Sessions and he didn't pick some random uh, person who was screaming at someone on the street, and he thought that they were making an interesting point. Well, um, yeah, but the other <laughs> side of that is that 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 nutcase from the street would not get confirmed. Uh, Jeff Sessions <laughs> yeah. probably will. And here's a guy, right, who was deemed. Uh, now again, it was 30 years ago, but we haven't seen a lot of change since. He was deemed too racist to be a federal judge by a Republican-controlled Senate, and now. He could be the attorney general of the United States. I mean, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I mean, if people thought that the right-wing obsession with the new Black Panther Party from about eight years ago was bad, uh, unfortunately, they should strap in. Because um, in all likelihood, that's the only thing that the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ under De uh, Jeff Sessions will care about. Yeah, voted uh, against the Voting Rights Act, thinks that it's an he called it an intrusive act, right? Called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference a communist-inspired organization. Again, and now this is the man in charge, will, likely, most likely, will be in charge of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. You know, it just turns everything on its head. Yeah, you know, I've come, so here, here's my best attempt at the silver lining. See if you guys like this. <laughs> All right. Um, as someone who worries about whether the Democratic Party takes the right lessons from its defeats uh, and who is concerned by the signals coming out of uh, Senator Chuck Schumer's office and some other places that they might try to uh, make a good effort for a while to deal with Trump, um, the selection of Sessions makes it 
kind of takes that option away from them unless they're truly suicidal politically. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's pretty impossible to, to look at Donald Trump selecting sessions to run the DOJ and then say, you know, well, we still should give him a chance. Right. Uh, yeah. You, you know, he, he's point. made rather clear who he is and how he'll govern. Yeah. Um, he's been doing that for his whole life, sure. but he certainly did that with his selection of sessions. Of all of all of the uh, appointments that Donald, that Donald Trump has made so far, the one that I find most offensive at all is Senator Jeff Sessions as the next Attorney General of the United States. Boy, we knew that our good buddy, CNN's legal advisor, uh, commentator, Avery Friedman, would have something to say about that. And we're so glad to have him join us this morning. Hello, Brother Avery. How are you? Well, Brother Bill, look at I. You know, if we got a couple hours on this, we'll get through this very, <laughs> very easily. Right. I, I, I have to tell you, why don't they invite Senator Sessions to the Oxford Student Union? Let's see what happens there. Oh, yeah, right. But, I mean, seriously, if you really care about the rule of law, right, just start there. And things, basic things like the First Amendment, the, the Voting Rights Act. I mean, you couldn't have a worse appointment than Jeff Sessions, could you? Well, it's it, it, there is a laundry list, and it's troubling. I mean, this will be when, after January, I mean, this will be the ninth president bill under which I've been doing federal civil rights prosecutions, and I, I kind of feel like the, the David Gergen of civil rights. <laughs> uh, minor league, of course. But, but my point is that when you look at the record, and again, I'm putting aside all the stuff that surfaced in testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee when he was nominated to become a federal district judge. I and mean, there's some pretty serious racist mm-hmm. stuff, but it, it, I think it would be unfair to, to Senator Sessions to end the inquiry right there. And believe me, Bill, there yeah. is enough stuff that carries through 2016 that if a discerning witness before the Senate is called to testify, um, I, I would think that the, the confirmation would be in jeopardy. Really? Because mm-hmm. it looks like, you know, senatorial courtesy and all that kind of stuff. But, but let, let me follow your line of thought. So he was rejected in 1986, we know, by a Republican-controlled Senate for yep. all these racist remarks that he allegedly made, uh, rejected as a federal judge. But so let's put that aside. You know, what what do you see in his later career or his career as a senator that people should be troubled about? Well, you know, there was also a reference at that time he called the NAACP an un-American organization. Yep. Yep. And, and if there were any organization in this country that advanced constitutional civil rights, including the desegregation of Alabama, uh, it was the NAACP. So. You know, you really have to call the question and say, Senator, what the heck did you mean by that? Um, the idea of saying, well, the KKK was all right, except some of those guys smoked pot. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's test that out. But, but here's where it really works. And, again, this is a function of experience. One of the things that happens if you get uh, an attorney general that, frankly, is either doesn't care about civil rights or is antipathetic to civil rights Here's the reality, and this is the area in which the Senate, I would hope, would inquire. For 40 years, most of the civil rights laws, Title VII that deals with employment, Title VIII that deals with housing, the Voting Rights Act Mm -hmm. does not require that you show what's inside of somebody's brain. You don't have to show intent. Mm 
What you have to do is look at the behavior. Whether or not it's intentional shouldn't matter. If, if you take somebody's rights away and it's not intentional because of race or gender or something like that, it, sh- it violates federal law. And there is a regression that happens among some, and we've had attorneys general that have said, look, it, you don't prove intent. I'm not prosecuting the case. Mm-hmm. And what happens, Bill, and this is why this inquiry is so important, if you don't ask the nominee, do you require intent or are you satisfied with what's called the effects test, that will determine or And i got to tell you. Yeah. During the Reagan administration, for example, under Title VIII, the Civil Rights Act of 1968, they brought less than a handful of cases where there should be hundreds of cases prosecuted. So if you don't ask that question, yep. then yep. the nominee goes, goes through. And, you're, you know, look, you're the political guy. Are there 51 votes that are there to confirm Senator Sessions? And what do you think? Uh, sadly, I believe there are, because when I hear Jeff Flake, for example, say, who never supported Donald Trump, that he can't wait to vote for uh, for uh, Jeff Sessions, again, I think it's that old senatorial courtesy that comes into play, and there are just not enough Democrats to block him. But on that voting, on the voting rights, I mean, the civil rights section, uh, Avery, you know the, the department better than I, but isn't that one of the key, one of the most important uh, divisions of the Justice Department? And what happens to the people who work in that section when they get an attorney general who calls the Voting Rights Act an intrusive act and who voted against it? Yeah. Are, are they going to hang around? Or? Well, they, you know, most of the people that work in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, as most divisions, are top-notch, best of the best. Yeah, right. And the but, main fighting force in this country for civil rights has been the Civil Rights Division yes. of the Department of Justice. I can tell you, because I've seen it, depending on who the attorney general is, either there's an excitement and an, an assertive sort of manner saying we know what Congress intended, or there is a malaise. In, in other words, there really yeah. is nothing to do. You're, you're not yeah. going to be pressing cases. And what that means is it, it diminishes the, the power and importance of our American policy when it comes to civil rights. So that's yeah. really what happens. Yeah. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Democrats doing some soul searching. It was about two weeks ago we were all saying, is there a future for the Republican Party after (laughs) Donald Trump? Now the same question is being asked of the Democratic Party. Uh, Simone Pate from Pate, sorry, from Roll Call, political reporter. Here in studio, she's been writing about this. Simone, it's always good to see you. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, So um, is there a future for the Democratic Party? (laughs) There certainly is. As we know, Democrats have gotten more votes this election in terms of the popular vote 
and in congressional districts than Republicans. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to harness that support uh, in ways that get them elected, which is easier said than done. That is that does raise, though, a very important question, which is this uh, inequality almost in the vote, right? right. That it's it's I, I saw a headline this morning, something about revenge of the rural voters, but they still have an inordinate amount of power right. compared to their numbers. Right. And it's because it's because the split in politics in America today is much more urban rural, even than it is Democratic Republican. You have most progressive liberal voters are concentrated in cities. Right. And most of the rural conservative voters um, are in these bigger states, but they still get two senators. Right. Every state gets two senators. Mm -hmm. So their representation is skewed in Congress. And that's reflected, of course, in the Electoral College. Right. Right, right. Where you have the number of, of congressional seats plus two senators is how you determine the number of votes for each state. So they end up with a lopsided total. So just for the record, by the way, uh, electors could uh, vote. Uh, they don't have to necessarily, right, they by could. law, right. follow the right. way their state voted. Right. I think that's pretty unprecedented for them to change, but I have heard of lots of um, angst, you know, among the population trying to convince these electors to change the vote of the state that they represent. So uh, in terms of the party, it seems to me that, of course, there's a future for the Democratic Party. I mean, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have suffered bigger losses mm -hmm. in terms of the Electoral College than, than the Democrats did this year. But uh, I think... Bernie Sanders is right that the party, this proves Bernie Sanders right, mm. the party needs a, I believe, uh, it can come back, but it needs a big shakeup. And if it just continues to do things the way it has been doing them for the last 25 mm. or 30 years, it's going to be tough coming back. Do, is that is that what you're hearing from Democrats? Yeah, I mean, this challenge that you're seeing to, to Minority Leader Pelosi in the House, this is the first time we've seen this uh, in quite a while. And to have, um, you know, someone very different from her, a, a Rust Belt representative, a younger, someone who represents sort of the next generation of Democratic leadership in the House, for him to be seriously contesting her in leadership elections, that's a big deal. That signals that enough members are thinking, Ooh, we had the same leadership for a while. You know, we've lost a lot of elections. We need some sort of change. That's not to say that they're necessarily blaming it on Pelosi. Um, she's a powerhouse fundraiser for the party, more so than really any other leader in recent history. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But if you don't have a message, and we saw this year, especially with Donald Trump, money isn't everything in politics. Um, mm. And so I, I think there's a lot of clamoring amongst sort of the rank and file of the party to see a change. Now, will they have the votes to topple Pelosi? That looks unlikely at this point, but who knows? Uh, but it's a change both in leadership and in, you're saying, a change in leadership and in message. Uh, and along with the message and in focus too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, focusing on middle class voters and, and middle class Americans. Right. In fact, Jamie Bernie Bernie Sanders was talking about this uh, over the weekend, and and he he talked about he wants to do everything he can to make sure that the focus is on mm. basically the people who have always been the base of the Democratic Party, who may have been neglected this time around. We need a strategy, and I'm going to work on the strategy to go to Michigan, to go to Wisconsin, to stand with working people, yep. to demand that we reverse the decline of the American middle class. Uh, on Meet the Press yesterday with, mm -hmm. uh, with, with Chuck Todd. So again, 
this is what you're hearing from House Democrats? Yeah, and it's not so much that they haven't spoken about the economy before. I mean, that, that, that's been a huge tenet of the Democratic Party about fighting for the middle class for a long time. I think it's just sort of an image problem that they've had as well for a lot of Democrats. Nancy Pelosi coming from one of the wealthiest districts, San Francisco, that just doesn't play well in a place like Youngstown, where you've got Tim Ryan, um, you know, with with union backers. His father was in the steel industry. Getting those people back into the Democrat Democratic Party might be a little bit more than than just the policies you're putting up, but the way in which you're messaging those policies. We welcome him, uh, to the program a good friend from Politico, covering the campaigns and now covering the transition, Elena Schneider. Hello, Elena. Nice to see you. Nice to see you guys, too. So this weekend, the pageant, um, the presidential pageant up at uh, the Trump National Golf Course, or whatever it's called in Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, some, some strange characters coming by, including on Saturday, uh, Mitt Romney. Now, we know that Mitt Romney, let's put be conservative and say he wasn't Donald Trump's biggest fan. Uh, he gave a big speech last March, as we recall, where he had a few things, choice things to say about the Donald. Donald Trump is a phony, a fraud. His promises are as worthless as a degree from Trump University. Mm-hmm. That was, I, I, we're reminded about how brutal that speech was. No, it was, was. I mean, it he was. he was guns out for, for Trump. Totally. He real that was sort of you remember how big of a deal it was at the time yeah, because yeah. nothing could seem to stop Trump at the time and and they thought this was going to be it. Right. This was going to be the Republicans he, really standing up to Trump and shooting this all down so that a guy like Cruz, I think Jeb Bush might have even been in the race at this at this point. This is like Jeb Bush might have oh, been yeah, able to rise. This, March, this was pretty yeah. early. So like so there were yeah. other Republican candidates they thought that were going to be able to just surge past Trump after destroy. Romney's brutal takedown of Trump. This would destroy Trump. Didn't even dent him. He even uh, if said, anything, it made him stronger. Here's how Trump was playing the American people. He's playing the members of the American public for suckers. He gets a free ride to the White House. And all we get is a lousy hat. Oh, oh, man. That proved to be prophetic, for sure, yeah. Well, so, the entire GOP Congressional Caucus all got a hat, so... Yeah, yeah. When they, when they met, they all had those big had red those Make America the... Great Again hats. Uh, so, Elena, was, what was this meeting with Mitt Romney all about? Uh, do you think, seriously he would consider him for Secretary of State, or was this pure window dressing? Well, I think we saw a ton of meetings over the weekend, as we've seen over the last week. And there's a certain element of, you know, let's never forget that he's a TV executive. And so he knows how to uh, perform yeah. a little bit of stagecraft. And I think that there is the an stage, element... Stage a pageant. Right, exactly. And he knows how to um, how to present that outward image and maybe do some obfuscating of what's happening maybe behind the scenes. So it's not, you know, based just simply on who he's meeting with, it's difficult to assess whether or not those meetings are, hi, how are you? Or uh, how interested are you in being maybe the most important cabinet member or the most uh, public-facing cabinet member that we have? Um, I, the... I don't think Mitt Romney would necessarily be meeting with someone like Trump if it wasn't at least somewhat serious or um, presented a, a sense of seriousness. Um, but who, who's to say? I think obviously the other person who is in the running for Secretary of State is Rudy Giuliani, who's been one of his most uh, loyal and vocal supporters for as long as he's been in this race, and we've obviously seen him really award loyalty over largely anything else. I mean, he's done a little bit of both in his picks so far. 
but I think that that's why everyone is so obsessed with who he's going to pick for Secretary of State, is that it is one of the most key roles one can play, and it's, it's going to say a lot about what his administration is going to look like, depending on who he picks here. But clearly, so far, as you indicated, his the only ones that have been chosen, right, there are four, mm-hmm. Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions, Mike Flynn, Mike Pompeo, all loyal. Now, Pompeo did Pompeo support. Pompeo was a little. He was a little off. The, but, but the first three, certainly, are loyal insider hardliners. No team of rivals here, right? I mean, these are people who swore their allegiance to Donald Trump from the get-go. Well, I think a choice of Reince Priebus, obviously, was an attempt to present uh, a um you know, an acknowledgement towards a more establishment, moderate wing of the party. And I think uh, Congressman Pompeo was a similar choice. Uh, so you've got, you know, arguably maybe two... I don't think two... you could call Pompeo a moderate in, <laughs> well... any, in any sense of form. I mean, what was it? Pompeo called President Obama a... I, I, I had it written down here. Wait, did the other... I, I didn't realize how far out there... This... Evil Muslim communist conspirer. That's what he called President Obama. But <laughs> so, he's right. a mo- so he's a moderate. He's a moderate. No. But he was not part of the inner circle. That's a better I'll way to put it. I'll give you that yes. point. Yeah, yeah right. Um, so, uh, 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 so Romney would certainly be uh, an aberration where he offered a post. I right? think, yeah. Now, so let's talk so about Rudy Giuliani and Chris Christie. Now, mm-hmm. So they also had meetings yesterday. Yesterday, not Saturday, Sunday. I mean, it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, that he knows these two guys. They've been around him from the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. And he didn't need to meet with them yesterday to talk to them about a cabinet job. I mean, he already knows who they are. He knows their, their qualifications. At one time, he had made Chris Christie the head of his transition and then fired him. So were those two meetings, do you think, serious or just, again, window dressing? I think they're, I'm, as you rightly note, he obviously knows these guys. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that they're, and I, so I do think that especially with somebody like Chris Christie who has clearly... Um, Roiled some of the loyalties within the, uh, you know, Trump insider world, um, you know, being put on transition, being taken off transition when it went, when it actually became a thing. So I think with somebody like Christie, there might be an element of trying to to look uh, to patch things up publicly, um, because there's certainly been plenty of headlines that have made Christie look pretty. Um, yeah. I, pathetic. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I yeah. started. I started getting feeling sorry for Chris Christie. You know, he's like that little puppy dog. He's you know, it was right there behind Trump for all those times and embarrassing times and didn't say anything. And, well, I he's mean, he's on the wrong side of Jared Kushner. And, and clearly Jared Kushner is somebody who has Trump's ear and um, is positioned, well positioned to take on a White House role. So it, it, the thing to Chris Christie to me is just so perfect because he really did sell out. I mean, he sold oh. out to endorse Donald Trump at a time when Donald Trump... The first one. Wasn't he the first he, one? He, he was think. one of the first the really big ones. ones. He yeah. was one of the... He might have been the first really major one. Yeah. And it came at a time when Donald Trump was kind of untouchable. Like, he, he was really kind of smelly at that point before he really sort of found his voice. And Christie was right there with him. And he's going he's gonna to end up getting nothing. No, well, he's going to end up getting nothing because you're right. Jared Kushner has Trump's ear and Chris Christie put Jared Kushner's dad in jail. Who Jared Kushner's dad, a horrible person. Like if anybody deserved to be sent to jail, it was Jared Kushner's dad. 
Uh, uh, but let's feel bad for him. Right. <laughs> I don't know. All right. So my take on Chris Christie is it, the job that he gets depends on whether or not Donald Trump has a sense of humor. <laughs> if, he, if he has a sense of humor, there's only... What do you think he'll make him if he has a sense of humor? Secretary of Transportation. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, wouldn't that be perfect? He would be... He'd have that bridge around his neck for the rest of his life. Or he's Secretary of Transportation. I've been talking about uh, the Donald Trump transition, uh, and there was a not Trump, a non-Trump meeting, but a Trump-related meeting here in Washington uh, that um, caused a lot of concern over the weekend. Pretty scary, come to think of it. It was a meeting of the alt-right here in Washington, and Pema Levy from Mother Jones was there reporting on it and is here today to tell us all about it. Hi, Pam. Welcome. Hi. Nice Thanks. to see you. So who is this group that met? Yeah, so this is a, a group called the National Policy Institute, um, which is run by a young man named Richard Spencer, who is sort of the leader of the alt-right, or one of, of the leaders. He's sort of like the young, fresh, um, polite face of, of basically white nationalism. Where did, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, just puts a nice, friendly face on, you know. Hey. Oh, but that's what they're, that's their goal. Yeah, no, I get that's it. Yeah. I totally it. get it. Yeah, yeah. But wait, they're, I mean, they are self-declared white supremacists or white nationalists. And what's the difference? Uh, you know, they sort of, I think, walk away from the term white supremacist a little bit, but they also embrace it. I mean, they, um, they call themselves... Uh, race realists. So, for example, at this event, race realists. Yeah. So they sort of like they sort of say, you know, race is the basis of our identity. We are white. Um, they have people there who um, have uh, I don't know exactly all of their sort of degrees from universities, but they basically say, look, you know, whites have higher IQs, except for East Asians. I think they, they sort of admit that, that they think East Asians are actually superior in terms of IQ. But then, um, yeah, but then but then Caucasians, they think, come come next, or, or white people, and, uh, you know, on down, and they think African Americans are, are the least intelligent, I believe. Um, so... Do they say that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> that's the thing no, that's yeah, so... they, With a totally straight face. I've, this is the second time I've been to one of their press conferences. Uh, so when you ask them about uh, you know, are they white supremacists? They'll sort of give an answer that I, I honestly think is dishonest. But they'll say white supremacy means white people want to rule other people. We don't want to rule them. We just want them to leave. <laughs> um, we just want this to be like a majority white state. I think that you can't I really. I think that ex- still qualifies as a white supremacist. Yeah, I, I mean, would, I think but... if you want every, if you want a white ethno state, um, you're not exactly looking at policies that empower um, people of color. Um, where did they? Where was the meeting held? It was in the Ronald Reagan Building, right downtown. Well, I thought oh, wow. so. Yeah. <laughs> how 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 is it possible that a group like that could get space in a federal building, even if it happened to be named after Ronald Reagan? Oh, well, I guess this is the First Amendment. Wow. Is this freedom of freedom. I mean, I I don't know the details of how you know, but yeah, I mean, this is. Um, you know, they're a group, they have unpopular ideas, but they're allowed to talk about them. But part of the problem for me is, like, I think it's so hard for people to really understand just how extreme they are, because we just can't believe that there's a group that this big that is still this excited about something like 
flat out racism. Yeah, it's one of the things that was really fascinating is they held this conference and then in, in the middle of it, they held a press conference. So they, they didn't really want press there throughout the whole thing, but they did allow the press to come for this sort of one hour Q&A. Uh, but they had all of the attendees in the room. It was sort of in this big oh. ballroom. Oh. And huh. so, for example, I would say, you know, I'm Pam mm-hmm. Olivia at Mother Jones and I have a question and people would go, boo, and I yeah, sort of, of waited out and then I'd be like, I have a question about Jeff Sessions and they go, yay. And so it was, it was really fascinating because you get to sort yeah. of take the temperature of, of the people there. Because right. I think we're about 200 or I was going to ask it you how many people. About 200 two, people? Between 200 and 300 people. All right. So, were yeah. they all white? Um, yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I mean, uh, except all... actually, you know, Tila Tequila was there. Tila Tequila was there. And I don't... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get myself in trouble. She full Nazi salute on Twitter. Yeah. I don't... I don't know um, if they would qualify her as white, even though she's there. Yeah, I don't know. There. Yeah. And, um, uh, I don't want to presume. Well, that, that answers my next question. <laughs> but, but overwhelmingly men, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely, which I think um, gives it a bizarre sort of frat um, feel to it. All right. So how lo- was this meeting scheduled after Donald Trump got elected or had it been scheduled previously? Previously. All right. So the purpose of the meeting was originally then not to celebrate Trump's election. I I would assume that they initially thought it would be a more somber occasion, but it definitely felt like a victory party. I I was going to say, did they talk about Donald Trump? Do they see Donald Trump as a supporter of theirs? Yeah, they're very careful. They don't characterize him as alt right um, but they do see him as someone who agrees with them on a number of issues. Um, they like his foreign policy. They want to be more um, isolationist. Uh, they like Russia. They see it as another white white mm-hmm. power. <laughs> um, and so they, they like Putin. They think he's sort of strong and macho. They have sort of a lot of um, ideas about sort of masculinity and you know what that is. So I think that they, they like Putin. Um, they love Trump's immigration plans. They want to deport a lot of people. Uh, they want to stop Muslims from coming, I assume, stop Muslims from coming into the country. So, um, you know, I think that they sort of see Donald Trump as someone who's open to his policies, who um, has given them hope, who's going to sort of move their movement forward. It's just stunning to think that Eight years ago, we elected the first African-American president of the United States, and eight years later, we have an alt-right group meeting three blocks from the White House in the Ronald Reagan office building. I mean, God. This is The Bill Press Show. And we close today with some uh, breaking news, some big news, and some good news. You know that after the disastrous results of uh, November 8, it's more important than ever that we progressives hang together, remain strong, and resist all attempts by Donald Trump to take this country backwards. It's more important than ever that we let the world know that we reject Donald Trump's bigotry and racism and misogyny. And it's more important than ever that we take advantage of every opportunity to broadcast our message far and wide, which is why we are so excited to announce today that as of today, the Bill Press Show is joining the Great Young Turks Network, which is the loudest, the biggest, and the best network of progressive shows in this country. 
We're so excited to become the newest network partner of the Young, Young Turks Network. I've admired their work and the work of Cenk Younger for a long, long, long time. Now we're part of it. And, of course, we'll continue to bring you the best progressive com commentary and the best uh, progressive guests that we can every day. And we invite you to join in, too. Here's how you do it. Go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show and subscribe as a member of our team. And we'll continue to give you the best programming we can with all of you as members now of the Young Turks Network. Again, please sign up today at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And thank you with the Young Turks Network. We go forward stronger than this ever. This is The Bill Press Show.